Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. When we assign a rating to a tornado, it's based on the damage it's left behind. But what happens when a powerful tornado roars through a field? Is the rating assigned accurate if there wasn't a building there to damage? Dr. Karen Kasiba joins us to talk about the research she and her colleagues have done in this subject, and we'll get into inside looks at what it's like experiencing a storm from inside a mobile radar, the tool used to determine tornadic wind speeds in these rural tornadoes. She's also a part of the Perils research team. We talked to someone a few weeks ago about that on the podcast, and we'll get an update on the research as storms are starting to roll through the South. Dr. Siba, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's always great to have return guests. That means that there was something really interesting or inspiring, and we wanted to hear from you again. We just had to have you back on. Uh, let's remind people again for someone that perhaps didn't uh, hear your previous uh, time on the podcast. We always like to start with this: How did you become a weather geek? Uh, good question. Uh, I think I was a physics geek first and I applied physics to weather. So it was sort of cool that there was not cool, um, that there was a lot of unknown stuff about the weather. Um, and I was sort of amazed that things like how tornadoes form and how tornadoes do damage was still a real active area of research. Um, so I went into that and I was excited to just get out in the field and work with radars and instruments. Um, so it was just Kept, kept going and I never stopped. <laughs> and, and this is an important point. As I l- list your background, you have a BS in physics uh, from Loyola University and a master's in physics and MAT in teacher education at Miami University. And then a PhD in atmospheric sciences from Purdue University, one of the top programs in our field. And you've done research focusing on low-level wind structures and tornadoes, supercell storm dynamics, and quantifying the boundary layer winds and hurricanes. But you're also, like me, passionate about science education and participate in activities in museums, festivals, and schools. So I commend you for that as well, because it's very important. And you are currently an adjunct research professor at the University of Illinois and manage the farm facility. So we'll get into what the farm facility is because I have a feeling it has not anything to do with cows and corn. So we'll get to that in a moment. But let's just deal with the basics. One of the tools that you work with most is something called a DAO, a Doppler on wheels. For the listeners of Weather Geeks, what is a DAO? Uh, right. So a DAO is, like you said, a Doppler on wheels. Um, so basically it's a radar, like everybody thinks of uh, for a radar, like the National Weather Service has, um, but it's on a truck. Um, and the idea with having it on a truck is, first of all, you could go to the weather. You don't have to wait for weather to come to you to study it. Uh, but also you can get up very close to the weather that you're studying. So for tornadoes, hurricanes, really small scale stuff, it's very important to be close to it. And that gives you a finer view of what's happening. We could also stand fast um, and just a lot of different things you could do with the radar once it's on wheels and once you've custom designed it um, in terms of learning more about the weather and different processes. Now, you know, I think many people that are listening to this podcast are familiar with radar. They have them on their apps and they see them on their TV newscast. 
But in some ways, these Doppler radars on wheels have different characteristics than, say, the National Weather Service radar or TV radar in terms of the wavelengths they're operating at and perhaps even some of the other characteristics. I, I teach the radar meteorology class here at the University of Georgia. And so, you know, I always like to talk about some of these differences. So what, what are some of the key differences between, say, those types of radars versus the type of radar me, many people may be familiar with seeing daily? Right. And so the National Weather Service does have, I'll say, nice radars. <laughs> um, so they do do fancy stuff. I mean, you know, you could do different sorts of scans. Uh, you know, right now they're all dual pole radars, which means that they transmit both in horizontal and vertical. So you get more information about precipitation type. Um, but mobile radars and the Doppler wheels in particular, I'm really lucky to actually work with the person who invented mobile radars, which is awesome. Um, and awesome that I could tinker the radars and stuff too. Um, but they have a lot of different characteristics. So we have three X-band radars, um, and those operate at three centimeters, um, as opposed to your National Weather Service ones, which operate at 10 centimeters. So it's a slightly, it's a shorter wavelength. Um, and the reason for the shorter wavelength in, mobile, in these mobile radars is because you want to get them down the street. Um, so if anybody's ever seen a National Weather Service radar with their radome off, um, they'll see that there's a big dish out there. Um, and they need that big dish because they have a big wavelength. And in order to get a narrow one degree beam, it needs to be focused with a big dish. So if you have a smaller wavelength radar, um, you can have a smaller dish and you can actually still get a one degree beam and still get it down the road. Um, the other thing that's really cool, we're also dual pole radars, um, but they're actually what we call dual pole, dual frequency. Um, so we actually operate at two X-band frequencies um, and they operate quasi-independently. Uh, so the advantage there is that first you could scan fast um, and still get good dual pole products because you lead, need a lot of in, independent samples to get good dual pole products. Um, so we could scan 50 degrees per second or something. Um, and then also you could, since they could operate quasi independently, we could do one in the slant 45 mode, which is what your National Weather Service radar does. But then we could do another mode um, where we transmit uh, in one polarization and receive in the other two. And then you get this product called LDR. Um, and it's an additional pole product, but it's a product you can't get just operating in 45. So we were able to get then that full suite of products um, using these dual pole, dual frequency radars. And then one more thing, because we have a new radar. Oh, yeah, let's geek out on the radar. That's one of the reasons we wanted you on, because we know you could give us the ultimate geek out on radar. And by the way, I'm a radar geek. I did my some of my early work with uh, Peter Ray at Florida State in radar yes, meteorology. Yeah. And so LDR, CDR, you're bringing back some memories here. <laughs> Well, so we do have a new radar, which is actually really cool. We've been deploying it for this Perils project, um, and it's called part of the farm. No, it's called the Cow, uh, which is a C-band on wheels. <laughs> um, so it's a slightly larger frequency or a slightly larger wavelength. Um, so instead of three, it's five centimeters. Um, but it has a big 12-foot dish, um, which cannot get down the road. Um, but what we do is we assemble it with the crane on site. So it takes a couple hours to set up, but once it's set up, we have a CN radar with a one degree beam, we're the only one that has that. Um, then it has the same dual pole, dual frequency characteristics. Um, since it's C-band, um, as you probably know, it's better for looking through precipitation. Um, X-band is great, um, but it attenuates in these big rainstorms or hails, so sometimes you're not seeing the back of the storm. But the C-band, for the most part, um, doesn't attenuate much. <laughs> much better than X-band's, not than the S-band, but it's still good. Like I said, it's a one degree one, so that's really really awesome for getting good fine scale resolution. Wow. That's, that's, that's really impressive. And let's go ahead and tell people what the farm is since you've, you've mentioned <laughs> it because, you know, I want, I want to get that out there. So what is the farm that you are managing there? 
Well, since the uh, Dapper on Wheels program is uh, partnered with the University of Illinois, we thought we needed a, <laughs> a name that goes with, um, you know, Champagne Urbana. Um, so well, what about we, corn? Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of corn that's been there before. I, I kid, yeah. I kid. <laughs> so we came up with uh, the flexible um, array of radars and mesonets um, and the farm. Um, so, yeah, so it's basically our suite of instruments, um, the DAF and wheels radars, uh, mesonets, soundings, um, other deployable instruments, pods uh, that we all manage. Um, and again, it's just came up with a good name. <laughs> we're hoping in, pre in other years that we're going to have uh, a biostatic network and call it barn. And we're hoping for a one degree S band that we assemble, we're going to call the sow. Um, so <laughs> we're trying. <laughs> so you, I tell you, you know, I've been in, I was at NASA before at the university of Georgia. So I know how important acronyms are. You know, <laughs> we spent a lot of time thinking about acronyms for various missions. And I, I, I appreciate the creativity <laughs> there and sort of the farm theme. Yeah. Now you, you, as we are I'm talking with Dr. Karen Kasiba here on the weather geeks podcast, I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the university of Georgia. Uh, as we're talking, uh, it's, it's early April and you are deployed as a part of Perils. And if you uh, don't know what Perils is, check out a previous episode of Weather Geeks because we introduced it. But at that time, uh, you hadn't gotten out in the field yet. This was a couple of weeks ago, though. Actually, it was almost a month ago that we did the interview. So there just hadn't been any action. But I believe you're in Montgomery, Alabama right now as we are speaking in a hotel getting ready to deploy because we're experiencing severe weather here in the southeast. I'm, I'm obviously in the Atlanta, Georgia area. You have been quoted as saying, or at least paraphrased from my production notes from the outstanding J.D. Dishroom, you are a firm believer in experiencing weather from inside of a mobile weather radar. Um, <laughs> so what's a deployment like for you when you deploy? I mean, what's the process? I mean, again, you can put it in perspective of perils. We know that we have active weather right. in the Southeast today. So how do you mobilize? What's that involved? Well, I have to say, in a mobile radar, it's much drier than going out and launching soundings in these systems. <laughs> maybe I'm just being, a, maybe it's like being inside. Um, yeah, so for Perils, Perils is an interesting project um, in the sense that um, basically everybody's based at their home institution. So we have people coming in from, you know, the University of Illinois, North Carolina State, Texas Tech, um, for anytime there's a severe weather episode or we decide there's a severe weather episode. And I think we have, gosh, probably 80, you know, 80 or 90 people in the field. Um, the U of I component alone in NC State has 30 people. Uh, so basically what we do is we come in, we have our instruments staged in the Southeast. Um, so for us, we have um, a couple mobile radars. We have our cow, um, sounding teams, pods, mesonets. Um, and then in advance of the weather, uh, what we're doing is we first have to set up our cow radar because it does take a couple hours to set up. Um, but then uh, after that, we're just actively deployed. Um, so what we do, sorry, this is very rambly. It can go quite the way it was supposed to go. Oh, that's, that's um, fine. I, I, we, <laughs> love, we love the inside thoughts, actually. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, so actually what we do first is we have a C-band network. So uh, our Cal radar, and then there's uh, two smart hours from the University of Oklahoma, um, provides sort of the backbone network of the Perils Project um, because there's spans, they're you know, precipitation penetrating. Um, these are sort of our backbone uh, instruments. And then with that, we fill in with a few X-band radars. Um, and then we have, like I said, multiple soundings, mesonets, um, lidars out here. And we're doing a study in the environment leading up to quasi-linear convective systems in the southeast. So we're looking at heterogeneities. We're looking at, you know, is, is the warm sector making it up or is there differences in different parts? Um, and how is that proceeding? But then we're also looking at the storm scale. So we're actually looking at these storms uh, as they're 
coming through. Uh, so we're looking at the structure of them. We're looking for rotation of these storms. We're looking at some of the precipitation physics and really trying to understand how quasi-linear convective systems make tornadoes. Um, it's a, one of the sort of the big, I'll say, it's a big unknown. Uh, we know a lot about supercell storms. Um, obviously, there's still a lot of work to be done there too. Um, but really, these QLCSs um, just have a short, the tornado part of it's hard to predict um, where it's going to make a tornado is hard to predict. They're, you know, they're a state wide, you know, a state long. I mean, and anywhere in there, you could potentially have a tornado, um, you know, unlike a supercell, which is very contained. Um, and then they're short, they can be short lived and they're also short to form. So in terms of forecasting or giving people warnings, it's very hard to get those warnings out um, quickly just because things are happening so quickly. So we're really trying to find some of these precursors uh, to this tornado formation uh, in these QLCSs. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard. I'm talking to Dr. Karen Kasiba about mobile Doppler radar, uh, perils, tornadoes, and many other things that we're going to geek out on on the remainder of the podcast. And you, you were mentioning these quasi-linear convective systems or QLCS is particularly dangerous for us here in the Southeast because uh, many of the storms that we see are these QLCS type systems. And they often tend to, I know, be nocturnal as well. Uh, as we speak, today's episode of Weather Geeks being released is a discussion with Dr. Steven Strader at Villanova University who talks about vulnerability and some of the unique societal and socioeconomic vulnerabilities in the South. And so uh, these perils experiments and Vortex Southeast are important from a science understanding standpoint, but also have some real societal impact standpoints as well. Uh, I want to kind of now go deeper into some of the things that you've kind of worked on in terms of rating tornadoes. Um, some say if there's no damage, then what's the issue? Because oftentimes uh, damage assessments, post assessments are done to get those EF ratings that people often see. Uh, but there are oftentimes storms in rural areas out in cornfields or wheat fields that may not destroy a building, but we still want to know about them and rate them. Why? Uh, several reasons, really. Um, so in terms of rating tornadoes, uh, first of all, we just, it's building our database. I mean, you want to know kind of here and now what, you know, what strength tornadoes are we getting? Um, just for looking at maybe into future climate, looking at how things might change. Um, you're just getting a baseline of where we're at um, is always a good thing to assess moving forward. Um, but beyond that, um, more and more people are moving into these areas that are vulnerable for tornadoes. Um, a lot of these places that weren't, you know, were rural, aren't rural anymore. Really understanding what the risk is um, and risk in these areas, how strong the winds are, how to engineer for structures in the areas, 
um, you just really need an accurate assessment of the risk. Um, so even though right now it might not be, you know, hitting a house or a building, um, you know, in years from now, it might be. Um, people might be living out there. Um, so really just trying to understand how to engineer better um, for these types of hazards. Can, can you help the, and I, I know the, this, but, you know, many of our listeners may not have a full appreciation of how tornadoes are rated. I mean, they've heard of the F scale or the EF scale. Can you just give us a little geek out 101 on the how, how it's currently done? Yes. Certainly, but I'm not a National Weather Service uh, employee, uh, so I'm, you know, just yeah, just the, the, just the high level. Yeah, yeah, I'm they're... not the person they're doing that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, certainly. Um, so a lot of times, uh, a couple of ways it's done. So um, sometimes they get storm reports um, of people, you know, where their damage is. They're looking at the radar, uh, and then basically a team of expert National Weather Service um, people go out there. And sometimes there's engineers. Um, it's a particularly challenging situation. Outside engineers come in, um, but they're looking at the path they're looking at trees, branches broken, debarked, you know, overturned houses, parts of the roof missing, entire roof missing, entire wall missing. Um, and basically they're finding what we call these different damage indicators. So there's things like buildings, trees, et cetera. Um, and then within these damage indicators, there's something called degree of damage. Then, you know, how, how badly was this house damaged, you know, and there's different ways it could be damaged. And each of those different ways it could be damaged is assigned uh, a wind speed value associated with that. Yeah, no, that's right. I, I think many people don't realize that it is a post assessment. I remember during my yes. years, <laughs> I, I, I remember during my years president of the American Meteorological Society, uh, there was an effort, I think, involving the American Society of Civil Engineers. Uh, they were trying to update some of this ca capability and engage or involve radar and mobile Doppler radar. Has that advanced and where is that? It has actually. <laughs> like, actually, there's a ballot out right now, um, which you reminded me to vote. Um, so, yeah, the American Society of Civil Engineers um, is making a very big effort right now to update the EF scale. Um, so there's a lot going on with actually updating the EF scale, adding different damage indicators, different degrees of damage. Um, but there's also uh, chapters that they're adding um, on radar. So using radar measurements to assign wind speeds or assess the wind speeds, I should say, um, in tornadoes. And then also in situ measurements um, and forensics and satellites. So there's a bunch of different ways that they're looking at. But for the National Weather Service, there's only, right now, there's only one way that they're rating tornadoes, and that's just the damage-based assessment of the EF scale. Um, but what the, the ASCE is trying to do um, is look at, again, all these different methods and be able to archive these different methods and archive these different results. So if we're out there with our radar and we measure some wind speed and we do an assessment of this, um, there's a, way, a particular way to do that. Um, and that particular way and this particular assessment then can get archived um, and people can go back and look at these things um, in conjunction with the EF scale and other ways. Yeah, this is uh, Dr. Karen Kasiba. She's just one of the top experts in the world on, on radar meteorology. So it's really a privilege to have her on Weather Geeks. Um, um, we apologize if there's a little audio choppiness here and there, but I, I know she's probably in a hotel room there in, in Alabama. And, you know, those of us that have been in hotels know that internet and Wi-Fi can be uh, suspected. But I was, I was getting a little note from our producers there, but we're, we're going to kind of keep foraging through because her information is really so amazing. Let's geek out on sort of um, take them inside 
without a weather radar classroom. When you're looking at weather radar and you're looking at a tornado signature, I mean, I think many people know that we often have in the past looked for a hook echo. But with Doppler radar and with dual polarimetric radar, there's so many other signatures that we can look for. So what are you looking for uh, with these dual frequency, dual pole, Doppler radar systems? What are the things that really indicate rotation and tornadic activity for you in those signatures? Yeah, I mean, for us, uh, with the Doppler on wheels or with mobile radars, uh, a lot of times we're very close to tornadoes and you don't really need, you know, much else other than the velocity center, which is a couplet that's happening in this tornado. So you see a lot of inbounds right next to each other and a lot of outbounds in the Doppler signature right next to each other. And really what we're looking at is how strong are those winds? So we're just looking at, you know, we see a couplet and we're assessing has it made it to tornado strength. Um, and that's a lot of what we're doing. Um, we're also tracking it and doing stuff like that. Um, so in the field, I have to say, it's probably a very basic, <laughs> a basic assessment of just, is there, is that a tornado and how strong are the winds and how far out do those winds extend? Cause that, that affects our field operations. Um, again, how strong the winds are, but also how far they extend affects our field operations and where we could safely put people to collect data. Um, but, um, there's a lot of new tools um, in our radars too. I mean, so like you said, the hook echo reflectivity, um, a lot of times what people are using now is something called ROHV or cross-correlation coefficient. Um, and they're looking at that debris signature, um, which is a low ROHV, um, indicating usually that it's not meteorological, that you have some sort of debris in there that isn't very well correlated in its H and V um, orientation. Um, and that's, again, you know, two by fours and stuff like that. Uh, so that's usually an indication um, that people could have now looking at the ADAD that actually probably some sort of damage is occurring either to trees, houses, something, um, because you're getting the signature in there. Uh, what's really challenging with ADAD network is that it's very hard to, I mean, sometimes it's sort of obvious that tornadoes are occurring, but it's hard to tell if a tornado is really occurring. So a lot of times if you're paying attention to a tornado warning, you'll see it's a radar indicated tornado warning, um, which means that, you know, that you're... Meteorologists have seen signatures all look, you know, like it's making a tornado, there's rotation there, um, but not necessarily sure if it's happening all the way at the ground. Um, because with the ADAD, a lot of times you're scanning, you know, much above ground level when you're looking at these signatures. So just because you see a rotational loft doesn't mean it's actually happening at the surface. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard, and I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Kasiba. You are sitting in a hotel room uh, as we tape this. It's April 6th. I usually don't like to timestamp our podcast, but I'm doing that for a reason this time. 
Um, we are in, uh, uh, you know, here in the Southeast today, there are sort of potential risks for, for tornadoes and, and high wind gusts and so forth. How are, what, what happens for you the rest of the day? I mean, again, this is around 923 AM Eastern time. Um, what, what, what happens? I and mean, we know something's going to pop today somewhere. So just walk us through the rest of your day, envisioning what's going to happen from a radar meteorologist standpoint in perils. Okay. So I shouldn't tell you, we actually decided not to operate today. Oh, um, you so are you not. Operate yesterday. Okay. Well, um, talk, tell, let, let's reason, rewind. Yeah. Let's rewind and go through <laughs> what happened yesterday in terms of how you deployed. <laughs> so the, the southeast is very challenging. It's not it's not the plains. I mean, and that's an obvious statement. But there's a lot of trees and hills here. So there's only certain areas that we're at, that we're effectively can operate our radar network. Um, so we spent a lot of time scouting out regions in the southeast. Um, basically, we have a region from Montgomery up to I'll say Tupelo, um, and then we have a region in the Mississippi Delta um, that is good for operating with radars. So what normally happens for a perils mission is we look at the weather and we decide, first of all, that somewhere we could operate. Um, does the weather have a good chance of producing a QLCS and a QLCS that might produce tornadoes? Um, and then what happens is that, and I spent a lot of time, so I'm the repair coordinator. Um, so basically what I do is I build a radar network um, with our C bands and our X bands. And based on the forecast, I decide where in these domains and how to configure um, these radars. Uh, last fall, I probably spent about a month out here uh, looking for radar sites. So just driving around, getting permissions, <laughs> talking to people, um, and seeing how radars can be configured. So what we do is we put together this radar configuration network. Um, and from that, the other teams build where they're going to put their assets within this network. Um, so as soon as that's done, um, probably about two to four hours, depending on the team, before storms are forecast to come through. Um, people are out there setting up uh, their instruments. Uh, we're setting up the radars. Uh, people are starting to launch soundings and they're starting to sample the pre-storm environment. Um, and we operate as the storm comes through. Um, so as the storm's coming through, uh, we're looking at yesterday, for example, um, it was actually a very quick progression uh, through our area. Uh, but there's a lot of circulation along this QLCS that moved through. So very successfully for our data collection, we had... Um, a QLCS moved through one of our dual Doppler lobes, one of our C-band ones, which was really good for studying that. Um, but we're watching all these circulations. We're watching where teams are. Um, teams are watching where they are, and they're trying to get in good positions, but also get in good positions that are safe um, from tornadoes or strong winds or something like that. And much like advertised, um, there's, there were some circulations that were longer-lived. Um, one of them in particular was with the, associated with a supercell, which was just ahead of the line. Um, but along the line, there are probably three or four other circulations, um, one or two of which at least reached tornadic strength. So it's a very interesting data set for us. I'm very excited to look into it, see see what was happening and see what we can glean from this data set. Yeah, this is Dr. Karen Kasiba. And, you know, that's, that's a good point, point for me to sort of give you an opportunity to explain to people because they may not understand the full context of these field campaigns, these field experiments. Why, where do they fit in the sort of ecosystem of improving prediction? Yeah, they, so I am definitely a field person, um, but certainly there's people doing modeling and stuff like that, um, that, you know, use the field data um, to help improve models, help improve predictability. And Perils, for example, is a joint project between the National Science Foundation and NOAA. Um, and I'm saying that a little bit because National Science Foundation is a lot more basic science. Um, and I'm an 
and National Science Foundation uh, investigator. And Noah is more operational. So it's a good mix of, you know, doing sort of the basic science, which needs to be done, but also really involving the operations aspect of this. Um, we're doing special soundings. Um, people are in contact with the National Weather Service. Um, so it's a great venture between increasing understanding, but also trying to figure out how this fits into the operations part of this um, and how that can help the operations part of this. Yeah. So, so, so far, just, I know you started maybe early March with perils. I mean, so far, it sounds like you have been able to get data. And from what I understand, this, this is going on the rest of the uh, spring, summer, and even into next year. Is that correct? It, so this year it goes from March 1st to May 1st. Okay. Um, and then we're doing a second year, um, starting a little bit earlier because a lot of times in the Southeast, there's sort of a long tornado season um, and we can't operate the whole time. Um, funds are limited. So what we're doing is just shifting it a little bit early because there's also um, tornadoes that do occur down here in the, in the February and early March timeframe. So we're going to start in February 15th next year to try to capture um, a little bit earlier into the tornado season. That, that's really cool. And, you know, we, 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 we are sort of in the process of, possibly acquiring an X-band radar system here at the University of Georgia with Georgia Tech. So uh, we, we hope to sort of enter the radar world ourselves here pretty soon. Fingers crossed. We're very close to the purchase. Um, Dr. Kasiba, where can people find more information out about you or your activity? Are you on a website somewhere or social media? Uh, maybe social media. I have to say I'm a pretty inconsistent social media. -er. <laughs> um, but yes. Sure. Are you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. Okay, yeah, so you can not, find her on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So she said she's a social media. That's a new word here. <laughs> but no, in, in, in all seriousness, what other than perils, what else is going on with you? What Any sort of other meteorological activities or research or things you want to share with us? A lot, which is great. Um, so right before perils, we finished a project in Canada. Um, and we just brought our radars. We are not scientists in that project. The fun thing about having a facility um, is that you get to do your own science, um, but then you also get to help people out with their science. So we did a project called Wintry Mix, um, which was up in Canada um, in upstate New York, looking at mixed phase precipitation. Um, so we finished that, and then we brought everything down to the Southeast. Um, I'm personally working on, besides analyzing petals data once we're finished collecting it, um, working on expanding uh, our tornado climatology. So looking at uh, low-level winds and tornadoes, uh, we had done a big climatological study of tornado intensity on the Doppler on wheels radar data, but now I'm just going to be focusing on the lowest 100 meters um, and looking at wind profiles in the lowest 100 meters. Um, and reason being, of course, is because that's what impacts people. That's very interesting to engineers. So we're trying to look at vertical profiles over 100, 200 tornadoes um, to see if there's some wind profile we could actually apply to the lowest levels. Um, there's perils next year. <laughs> um, and certainly there's other people who have proposed uh, to use our radars for uh, numerous projects. So hopefully, hopefully they get funded. Um, and yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're, 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 you're going to be busy for the foreseeable future. I can tell. Um, wow. This has been great. We have to end it here, but before we do, it's time for our geek of the week. We like to highlight a scientist, superstar, a great geologist, or a weather weenie, or in this case, a major league baseball player. This episode's geek of the week is Mike Trout. Mike is a professional baseball player for the Los Angeles Angels. Uh, growing up in New Jersey, it's 
no surprise that he experienced his fair share of snow, so much so that it's his favorite weather type. And part of his most memorable weather experience is the blizzard of 1996, which stretched from Southern Appalachia to New England. Uh, we've no, long known that Mike Trout's a weather, uh, weather geek, and we've tried to get him on the Weather Geeks podcast. So, Mike, if you're listening, uh, give us a call. We'd love to have you on. If you know someone that would be a deserving candidate for our next Geek of the Week, check out our social media pages and shout out also to Kevin Durant, who I know is a weather geek as well. Uh, watching the NBA playoffs uh, starting here soon as a big basketball fan. But Karen, thank you so much for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you. And I am Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. We will see you next time on Weather Geeks. Weather Geeks.